on Special Edition. I look at the murder-suicide in Western Australia, the latest on Graham Kay, the North Shore rapist, and an unfortunate accident for a party-goer in Scottsdale, Arizona. So let's do it, Islanders. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, as you may well have heard, especially if you're in Australia, there was a tragic murder-suicide in Western Australia this week in the small town of Osmington that some say is more of a village than a town. Virtually a whole family was wiped out in what looks certainly to be a murder-suicide. Peter Miles, 61, his 58-year-old wife, Cinder, their daughter, Katrina, 35, and her four children, daughter, Tay, 13, and sons, Ryland, 12, Eyre, 10, and Caden, 8, were found dead from gunshot wounds at the family farm in Osmington on Friday, the 11th of May. Now, Osmington is a small town located in the southwest region of Western Australia, about 20 kilometres or 12 miles northeast of the Margaret River. If you look at the map of Australia, it's in the little chin bit and just out from the main city centre. Police were called at about 5am by a man who we now presume was the grandfather Peter Miles And although the content of that call has not been released, it's safe to say it was to inform them that he had killed his family and he was about to kill himself. Peter had several guns that were registered and legal on the farm. And this is a very rural area, so nearly every property has registered firearms. When police turned up, they were confronted with a gruesome and shocking scene. The first media reports told of seven dead and, of course, in a majority of these cases, the main suspect would be the estranged father. But with, as I said, seven dead and police saying they were not looking for a perpetrator, then who was killed and who was alive? if you include the father of the four children, Aaron Cockman, that would mean eight people are in the immediate family. Well, as we now know, Aaron was not there at all, and it was the grandfather, Peter Miles, that seems to be the killer. Aaron did face the press eventually, 
and he seemed to be trying to process the event as his statement showed. He said, Peter didn't snap. He knew what he was doing. He did it really well. If someone was going to do it, I trust he did it right, and he did it right. He said the lengthy custody battle between himself and Katrina wasn't her at all, but was driven by her parents. Kat's mum said to me once, You'll see, Kat will make sure you and your parents never see those kids again. I've had so much anger ever since I was cut off from my kids. So much anger. That was due to Peter and Cinder making sure I was cut off from my kids. They weren't schooled, they were homeschooled. So I never knew where they were or how they were doing. I would just drive around town hoping to see them somewhere. And I would every now and then. And that would get me a few more weeks. It kept me going. I had supervised visits and it was amazing. They were beautiful kids. Aaron said the Miles family had struggled ever since learning that Neil Miles, Peter and Cinder's son, was awaiting a kidney transplant. He is one of two sons to to Peter and Cinder. Their third son committed suicide ten years ago. Aaron went on to say, I thought if something happens to Neil, Kat will not be able to lose another brother. I didn't think about Cinder and Peter. There's no way possible he could lose another son. He just thought, I can't live anymore, so this is it for me, but I need to take out everyone because that will fix the whole problem and he's fixed the whole problem. Aaron said the last time he saw his children was two weeks ago on the little roundabout swings in Bustleton and added that he holds no anger towards his former father-in-law who seems responsible for their deaths. Even with the custody battle and all the shit that goes on in a bitter divorce, I don't think anyone could predict for something like this to happen. So what else do we know? Peter and Cinder Miles sold up their house and moved to the rural property to start a new life, growing veggies and being able to have a few farm animals. Part of the plan was to convert a shed on the property where their daughter Katrina and her four children could live. Cinder's close friend and neighbour Felicity Haynes said, Cinder made it her business to know about growing veg. They had hens, sheep and cows. Cinder had four different types of runner beans, Russian tomatoes, things you can't normally buy in the shops. Peter wasn't an articulate man. He was very quiet, a hard, good farm worker. There are lots of people like that out here. You don't talk about things. Felicity said Cinder had only recently told her there were a few difficulties at home and that Peter was becoming less rational, which was a worry to her. Now, although Peter was known as a quiet man, Cinder was quite the opposite. She organised workshops at the local library, and in fact she put one on the day before the killings. 
It was the Boomerang Bag Information Session with Cinder Miles. It was on Thursday, 10th of May, the day before, uh, 1 to 3 p.m. It was a free event with afternoon tea provided. Learn about the Margaret River Boomerang Bag Movement with Cinder Miles and see how a boomerang bag is made. Let her enthusiasm for shopping plastic-free inspire you. Little did she know what would transpire just 12 hours later. Peter Miles, the grandfather, had worked as a farmer and teacher and was formerly the manager of the Margaret River High School farm. It is reported that he placed an ad looking for vineyard and farm work just two days before the killings. And one potential employer, neighbour Richard Dosser, who spoke to him the day before, said he didn't seem enthusiastic, if you know what I mean. I was talking to him on the phone last night. I was going to ask him to come over tomorrow. He seemed very vague. Now, Peter had no real history of violence or any mental health issues, but it does look like something was up, which I will get to later. So when the emergency triple zero call was made at about 5.15am on the 11th of May, two police officers, Senior Sergeant Brett Cassidy and Senior Constable Ian Southall, took the 20-minute drive to the property. They first walked to the converted shed where they found the three oldest children, Tay, Rylan and Eyre, dead in their beds. Not far away, their younger brother Caden had been shot dead along with his mother Katrina as they slept side by side. Cassidy and Southall then entered the main house where they found Cinder lying dead on the floor of the living room and on the outside porch was the body of Peter. Now how this must affect them and all the other police and emergency workers that had to attend the scene, I don't know, but things like these must take their toll eventually. But just today, an article in the Perth Now newspaper by Trevor Paddenberg may shine a little bit more light on the tragedy. I'll read it out. Margaret River grandfather Peter Miles had started taking antidepressant medication just weeks before he shot dead his wife Cinder, daughter Katrina and four grandchildren on their hobby farm. Mr Miles had put on weight in recent months which can be caused by antidepressants and some close friends now suspect the medication he'd been prescribed may have played a part in triggering or heightening his homicidal and suicidal thoughts. Organic farmer and family friend B. Winfield confirmed 61-year-old Mr. Miles, who had been looking for work on Gumtree just two days before shooting dead his family, had been suffering depression and had gone to doctors for help. It seems the antidepressants he'd been prescribed were not working, she said, adding that some antidepressant medication had no warnings on the box, 
but came with the risk of terrible side effects, including suicidal thoughts or thoughts of harming others. Another close friend who visited the family just days before the shooting said, Cinder told us Peter had gone onto antidepressants in the last few weeks. I feel for the sake of society that these mind-altering drugs should be exposed as dangerous. The Australian newspaper yesterday reported Ms Miles told friend Kath Miller the day before the mass shooting that her husband's depression was getting worse and worse. Peter seems to be getting worse and worse, so I don't know that he's going to be able to do the yeoman's plough. Can you find someone else? Really sorry to let you down, but I thought better to let you know than hope he improves. Miss Miles wrote that in a Facebook message to Miss Miller. Other family friends who spoke to the Sunday Times about Mr Miles' medication stressed they did not know which type of antidepressant he'd been prescribed. But they have genuine fears it may have belonged to a common class of the drug known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. SSRIs boost serotonin levels in the brain and are considered effective in the vast majority of cases, but there are claims that in rare cases they can contribute to extreme violence, murder and suicide, particularly in the first few weeks they are taken. In a 2004 court case, a Western Australian woman who pled guilty to attempted murder after trying to kill herself and her two-year-old and nine-year-old daughters by gassing them in the family car, also blamed antidepressants prescribed to her. The court was told the mother, whose name was suppressed, would not have committed the offences if she hadn't been prescribed high doses of SSRIs. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists referred the Sunday Times to its guidelines, which state some patients taking SSRIs experienced an immediate and distressing level and agitation. And the college's clinical guidelines warn medicos to monitor all patients for the emergence or worsening of suicidal thoughts during the first two to four weeks of treatment. Fuck's sake, these drugs sound very dangerous. Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, warned that patients are often not aware of the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviours when they begin treatment with antidepressants and it urged doctors to effectively communicate the risks, particularly with SSRIs. The TGA confirmed, Treatment with antidepressants has been linked with a small increase in the risk of suicidal thinking and behaviour, but also said it was difficult to determine whether it was caused by the drug or a symptom of the underlying condition. In the UK, 
a 2017 investigation by the BBC, which sparked a backlash from the medical community, claimed that SSRIs had been associated with 28 reports of murder referred to the UK medicines regulation in the last three decades. So, I've heard before that some drugs can have these types of side effects, and I'm sure that there will will be a coronial inquest into the shooting, and that may help explain what happened. You know, there's probably not much more to say about this, as we may never really know the whole truth on what happened on that rural farm in Western Australia. One thing, though, there is help out there if you or someone you know needs it. Now, I'll just tell you of some of the services that are available locally in Australia, but they do have their counterparts all over the world. Now, if you go to Wikipedia and uh, search for list of suicide crisis lines, you'll get a list of countries and their associated suicide crisis lines. Anyway, in Australia, we've got triple zero. Now, that's the national emergency number in Australia. We've also got Lifeline, which is www.lifeline.org.au. Now, that's a 24-hour nationwide service that provides access to crisis support, suicide prevention, and mental health support services. It can be reached also at 131114. They also offer an online chat service. There's a Kids Helpline which is kidshelpline.com.au. It's also 24-hour nationwide. It's a service that provides access to crisis support, suicide prevention and counselling services for Australians aged 5 to 25. It can also be reached at 1800 55 1800. In addition, the Kids Helpline does also provide online chat services. There's also Beyond Blue, which is beyondblue.org.au that provides nationwide information and support regarding anxiety, depression and suicide. It has a helpline which can be reached by calling 1300 224636. The helpline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In addition, the organisation also provides online chat from 15 to 24. Now, another one I found also is Men's Line, and I've got the phone number there. That's 1300 789 978. Okay, so let's get into some more news. Now, this week, Graham James Kay the notorious North Shore rapist and scumbag, was denied bail for breaching his parole conditions. He will face court again in June for sentencing and I will keep you up to date on what's going on there. Good that he's off the streets, but for how long? If you haven't listened to last week's show, have a listen about this creepy maggot. But be warned, there is depiction of sexual violence in that episode. 
Now, there's no National Sex Offenders Registry in Australia, but there is a debate on getting one, and of course there's always two sides to these sort of stories. One is that it's a bad thing to punish those that have done their time by keeping a public record that anyone can see for life. Others say that those types of records that can't be accessed by the public are basically useless. But there's others that are pro-record. Now, one such person I found on the web was an Australian psychiatrist from Melbourne. Now, he says the recidivism rate for sex offenders, particularly pedophiles, is extraordinarily high due to a number of crucial factors. Pedophilia is considered by most psychiatrists to be a biologically determined disorder, a sexual attraction of preference. Numerous recent studies bolster this conclusion. The occurrence of the preference is not a matter of choice, although exercising that preference certainly is. Treatment of pedophilia has been uniformly a dismal failure, except in the case of chemical castration using libido-suppressing hormones that carry substantial risks of serious side effects. Claims made for the success of psychological treatment and sex offender programs are frequently and easily debunked when offenders are adequately longitudinally studied. Knowledge of the location of sexual predators provides citizens with informed choice and the right to consent to taking the real risks involved or not doing so. Measures can be taken to outlaw vigilantism and discrimination and to deter such behaviour with severe penalties. Registers operate successfully in several overseas jurisdictions and provide an added layer of protection to vulnerable potential victims and deterrence to potential reoffenders. The opinions of proponents and opponents of such registers should be debated at a community and governmental level in a more comprehensive and evidence-based manner before any final conclusions are drawn. It's the case of this world that eventually are let out and are not rehabilitated. And that's what the community as a whole needs protection from. Because these asshole scum will never stop. What they do is hardwired in their fucking perverted brains. The poor kid that gets caught sexting obviously doesn't need to be on a sex offender's register for life, so there needs to be some way to work out who should be on it and who shouldn't. One thing for sure, it needs to be readily accessible to the public. Let's hope we get some sensible debate on the subject, and it needs to be nationwide, not run by the states, then this will allow for uniformity in legislation. Anyway, I'll update you all as it happens on this sicko Graham K after his next court appearance. Now, next, something a bit more light-hearted. Man high on ecstasy 
burns own genitals while trying to have sex with electric fence. So, Scottsdale, Arizona, a rave party turned terribly wrong for a young Arizona man highly intoxicated on ecstasy after he ended up having sexual intercourse with an electric fence and sustaining third-degree bone b- bones burns on his lower abdomen and genitals. Adam Weinberg, 26, was rescued by fellow partygoers of the illegally set-up rave after they noticed he was in horrible agony and unable to unclamp himself from the electrified fence surrounding the area. The young man, who was highly intoxicated on several drugs including ecstasy, apparently mistook the electric fence for a sexual partner before feeling the burst of 220 volts and 13 amps passing through his body. Now, Adam says, I was high as fuck. I'd taken some GHB and some DMT to start out the party. I then did a shitload of ecstasy and a bunch of amphetamines before taking a few hits of cocaine. Then someone poured some acid drops into my eyes and I totally lost it. I got really horny and wandered off in the desert and I saw all these hot naked chicks dancing around. But later, I figured out they were just wooden fence poles. At first, the electricity passing through me was like the biggest orgasm I've ever had. It felt like my balls were coming to explode. That's when I felt the horrible burning sensation and the smell of burning flesh. He remembers that before passing out, the poor boy. He says it was a night to remember. Adam Weinberg says he hopes his story will reach other young adults and prevent further injuries or even deaths. I realise now that I am a drug addict and that I could have died in the most stupid way ever. Some of my friends say I shouldn't publicly talk about trying to have sex with an electric fence while high on ecstasy and that I will look like a fool. But if my testimony can help just one person not to do the same thing I did, it will be worth the shame and ridicule this news coverage will bring upon me, he concluded. (sighs) Tide pods, anyone? Now, here's a bit for the end of the backlog campaign. Now, if you know Kate and Georgie, from the Nothing Rhymes With Murder podcast, they, like many of you I'm sure, feel crazy emotional about all this stuff coming out about the arrest of the East Area Rapist. Now, they felt the need to channel it into something positive. So they're organising a true crime community fundraiser in support of the end of the backlog campaign. Now, there's a few websites you can go to have a look here. One is their GoFundMe 
website, which is gofundme.com forward slash end the backlog. Another one is the End the Backlog organisations one, which is endthebacklog.org. Now, they've put together a little competition you can enter, and there's a YouTube clip. Now, this is on, and I'll read it out slowly, www.bit.ly forward slash end the backlog prize draw. Please give generously as you can. Every little bit helps. And they say, don't be the bastard that enters without donating. Because you, as of right now, I think they've got over 30 true crime podcasts and they're adding them as they go, including the likes of Generation Y, and that's why we drink, True Crime Garage and Case Files, and True Crime Island. We have been kind enough to donate some uh, merch and special gifts, the details of which will be released as they receive them. The deadline for entry is 1900 BST. I think that's British Standard Time. 16th of June 2018, so you've got a bit of time. The winners will be chosen at random from 8 o'clock that evening at the True Crime Podcast Meetup hosted by True Crime Club in London. They will live stream the draw. For more information on all the podcasts involved and what you can win, check out their updates on social media. At NRWM Podcast, facebook.com forward slash NRWM Podcast, instagram.com, forward slash nothing rhymes with murder you can also email them with any questions at nothing rhymes with murder at gmail.com now the true crime community is a truly awesome and amazing one they feel so lucky to be part of it so do i and we can't wait to see what we can all achieve together Now, as I said, I've donated to the GoFundMe on behalf of all the Islanders and also sent a bit of loot over to the girls to include in the prizes. Okay, next, Brooke Giddings, podcast host and producer at Borrowed Equipment Podcasts. She's part of podcasts you will know for sure. Actual Innocence, Genocide, Convicted, Cold Case Files, the podcast. Well, she's got a new one called Buried Alive, the story of DeMarcho Carpenter. Now, DeMarcho Carpenter was 17 when he was convicted of murder. He spent the rest of his life wondering why. Because DeMarcho was not guilty. A broken justice system had sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in prison. 22 years later, he was exonerated, but he can never get that time back. Sadly, his wrongful conviction isn't an isolated incident, but rather part of a larger systemic breakdown. Through the Buried Alive podcast, they hope to identify the societal and systemic flaws that ultimately led to the innocent people being incarcerated. It's their hope that identifying the breakdown in the system will help us to fix it. 
Now, I'll be running a promo for this at the end of the show. Now, I've got another shout-out for Paul Sutherland of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Paul likes to dig out the obscure and forgotten crimes, not recover cases that are almost household names and are already well documented. So you won't find your Shipmans, your Wests, your Sutcliffs, etc. here in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. But you may find some things that are, if not as sensational, then I hope at least as interesting to you as they are to him. And although it's been a big wide world out there, Paul tends to focus upon UK-based crimes. I'll be running a promo at the end of the show as well for this podcast, so do yourself a favour, check both of those fantastic podcasts out. So that's about it for this week's special edition. Next week, I have another full episode for you, and it is quite sensational. Special edition episodes, look, I usually run these every second week. It is a chance for you to participate by sending me your own true crime story. So send it in and I'll read it out. There was a huge reaction to the crossover episode with Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder. Stay tuned for more. I think I need to send Tara and Barney a couple of tickets from Boomfuckalunga Airlines so that they can visit the island for the next crossover. So True Crime Island is totally ad-free and it's totally listener or islander funded. There's plenty of ways to support the island. First up is Patreon. And a big shout out to new Patreon, Amber Mackey. Thank you very much. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. Now, all funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal. If you want to buy me a beer, and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash true crime island. If you want stickers, koozies, lapel pins, or key rings, you need to email me directly. Now, my email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I can price it up for you according to postage and where you live, of course. Now, I have $20 and $25 loot packs available now. That in- The $25 one includes keychain, lapel pin, koozie, and stickers. Also, it includes postage. You can buy the keychains, pins, and koozie by themselves if you like. Just email me for whatever you want. Now, all the other merch, such as T-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, all that stuff is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, if you go to my website, there's links to all of that at the top of the page. Thanks to everyone who has bought some swag. Again, you do not have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, show them the way. 
There's the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. We've got two fantastic mods. That's Senga and Jason. If I don't let you in, they'll let you in. Don't forget to check out Twitter and Instagram. The island's handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat and there's so many other podcasts on there. You can have a chat with those as well. Hi to all the followers. Well, that's about it for tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James. And again, a shout out to Renee in WA. So this has been Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. In 1994, Karen Summers was killed in a drive-by shooting. She was 19. The next day, the police found a man with the car and the gun. The police came home to question me, and what's so crazy, I have the gun on me. But they wasn't after me, so all I know is I had a murder weapon on me, and they let me go. And one year later, Karen's murder trial ended in a conviction. But the thing is, they convicted the wrong man. Oh, I remember when they said guilty, I just, I recall crying, just crying. I went back to the cell and cried. It was like, you know, they tell me a life in 170 years, I'm never getting out of prison. After a shocking death row confession. I wasn't trying to shoot Karen Summers. I was just, and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I shot Karen Summers. And a man's life was changed forever. Buried alive is what I was for 22 years. Not literally, I look forward to speaking. I definitely want y'all to tune in. The true story of DeMarco Carpenter on the podcast, Buried Alive. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure but in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come and have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast.